Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is Sunday, May 21st. It is episode 35. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're going to talk to you about pinball and video games, and that's about it today. But it's plenty. It is indeed plenty. So let's go ahead and get our intros out of the way. Tony, it's been two weeks. What's going on? It's been an awful busy two weeks. Uh, I've been the early guy at work, so that means I've been waking up at like 3.30 in the morning. Uh, but I've gotten a lot of stuff done, even though I've been going to bed a little earlier than normal just to make everything work together. Uh, and on top of that, being the, this point in May, I mean, the girls are just getting out of school. So there's been a lot of school functions going on. And also Triella just ran her second 5k, uh, yesterday. So we were up at Arrowhead while she ran that yesterday. How'd she and do? She did good. She did 34 minutes and 44 seconds, which is a minute and seven seconds faster than last time. Mm. So she's definitely getting even faster. There's no way I could run 5K in 34 minutes, maybe on a bicycle. Okay, yeah, definitely it, on a bicycle, but. It sounds exhausting. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a runner, as my physique can show. I don't have the knees for it. I, I tore my knees up in wrestling, so I just don't have the knees for it. My knees hurt anytime I run or do anything like that. My knees just kill me. Too much damage from high school. Uh, paying the price. Paying the price. But that's what glory costs. I don't know if I ever had that much glory to make it, it, was glory. Make it worthwhile. So much glory. All right. Any, anything else then? No, and I haven't really had anything else big going on, playing some games and stuff that we'll talk about later, but nothing fancy. It's mainly been school stuff and dealing and stuff with the girls. Yeah, I haven't had a whole lot uh, besides work. It was audit time this last week, so I had to work with the auditors. We have an audit every year, so it went well, but it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, actual research work that I can't do until they're out in the field. So that, and we had a new hire at work. So I've been doing a lot of training on how to do the financial aspects of that particular job. And it again, went fine. It's just, it's time consuming. So outside of that, I haven't actually, I haven't played my pins since before the last episode we recorded. They are just sitting there turned off. Uh, You and I went to the pizza West tournament yesterday. So I had that. And then the week before we had a new location open up in on the Missouri side, uh, Tapcade, North Kansas City. And so I went out, uh, one of our area uh, skilled players, Steve, was running the tournament out there and they did a three strike and it went really well. There were, uh, there were I think, five people I didn't recognize who were there. I, and I think I'd heard confirmation that at least four of them were new, actually totally new. So uh, it did get some new people. So just I think it goes to show that you, if you have locations in proximity to people so they don't have to drive too far, they are willing to come out and give it give it a shot. Not so everybody's nice. willing to drive a half hour to go to a tournament like we are. Well, yeah, no, exa- exactly. But yeah, I mean, we're a good case in point. We didn't go to 403 until we had done Pizza West, which is a lot closer for us. So it's. You know, I probably wouldn't have gone 30 minutes for my very first tournament. Now I'd be, I'm more willing because I enjoy it. But anyway, so there is that. 
And then speaking of my pins and the not playing since the last episode, I have to do a correction regarding the last episode. Yay, corrections. Uh, and this one was not reported in. This is one I caught myself shortly after we released the episode. And that was the episode where we had uh, Bowen on, which uh, feedback was extremely positive. So I'm glad people really did like it. I've had uh, some people write me privately and uh, even some people who listen, who are in the area, who play pinball, obviously in particular, since he's such a known entity in the pinball scene, uh, saying that they really enjoyed the episode. So I'm glad people liked it. Uh, but there was a mistake, uh, a, me, a me mistake. And my mistake was when we were having that discussion about Silver Slugger and Hoops. And I mentioned that I thought Hoops was a game that, like Silver Slugger, had John Trudeau on design. But then in the case of Hoops, John Norris took over on the project because uh, Trudeau left. Uh, that was wrong. Uh, it's Ray Tanzer is the designer of Hoops. The street level Gottlieb I was thinking of, which had Trudeau and John Norris both working on design, is a game called uh, Deadly Weapon. So... There, it, there was one. I just, I, I forgot which one it was, which is so unfortunate because my actually my favorite part about pinball is all that baseball card type stuff where you, you know, you learn the stats and all the things. This is, it's kind of where I geek out on it. So, anyway, my, my mistake. But uh, so Ray Tanzer is the designer of hoops. I don't really know much about his portfolio, so I can't really say anything else. But correction now corrected. All right, and isn't Deadly Weapon? Isn't that one of those kung fu themed ones? I actually have no idea what it looks like. Well, we'll have a correction next time for what deadly weapon. <laughs> well, you, 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 you merely asked it as a question. So we haven't committed to that. So we don't actually have to fix it. But if you want to go to a uh, internet pinball database and look at it, uh, you can always report back exactly what the theme is on the next episode. But speaking of the internet pinball database, uh, do want to note a couple of sponsorships, uh, us doing sponsorships, not us receiving sponsorships. Uh, we are now listed, uh, Project Pinball Charity has listed us on their website as one of their sponsors. Um, internet pinball database is a sponsor. They actually have a lot of, of sponsors that for those that don't recall, and we've done an interview with Project Pinball before, and we do promote them, uh, on our Facebook page in particular when they're running events and they're always running events. But uh, they play spinball machines in children's hospitals. They've also expanded to Ronald McDonald houses. And as a their mission is to introduce therapeutic benefits through pinball to children. And so we here at the podcast are, are happy to offer what support we can. They get a lot of uh, sponsorship support from the pinball community, ranging from entities as big as Stern Pinball to groups like Measle Mods are sponsors, uh, Marco Specialties and Comet Pinball, which obviously supply parts for pinball machines. Um, I think we're the only podcast, though, that's actually listed. But anyway, uh, we're pleased to do it. And separate from that, uh, we are also sponsoring CantCon, which Tony has brought up several times uh, since we've started airing these episodes. It's an area, Kansas City area, tabletop convention. Uh, we go for the RPG Fix. And that's going to run July 14th through 16th this year in uh, Overland Park, which is in the suburbs of Kansas City. So we've gone ahead and we've uh, we've provided a sponsorship to the, to that entity. Uh, Tony and I are both going to be there at least part of the time. We're not going to be all three days, but we're going to be there some of the time. Yeah, at least I'm planning on Friday and Saturday is my plan. We'll see if the plan works out, but that's the plan. That it's mine as well, and I have put in the request to have the Friday off. I'm pretty confident the Friday is going to work well. The only thing I haven't decided yet on Saturday is if I want to stay as long as I did last year, or we've got uh, the Pizza West Monthly Pinball Tournament the same day. And I'm since I have some other people who like to go to that, I'm wondering if I want to try and 
maybe compress the schedule and get out of there in time to actually make that. I, I'm not sure yet. I'm thinking about it, but I am planning on both days, but not Sunday. So that's it for me in updates. So I think we need to move on into the silver ball itself. Tying the silver ball, I went ahead and looked up Deadly Weapon, and it looks like a bad 80s Lethal Weapon Yakuza ripoff. So it sounds like your sort of game. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm not, I, I don't think it's that horrible, but I mean, it, 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 lo- it, it the uh, feel is very kind of yakuza buddy cop type. How's the layout look? It looks okay. Hmm. I mean it's yeah. it's got it's got a trio of pops up top and a couple drop targets and three flippers. Actually, um, there's some more drop targets there on the right side. Though the uh, the the pops are they they're they're bright yellow and they've got the big Gottlieb G on top so they look like they're sponsored by Gatorade. <laughs> well it would if it's if it if it, the gameplay is as good as Gatorade tastes it's going to be awful but I I I like Gatorade. Yeah, well, <laughs> there are a few of you out there that are messed up. I can't fix that. I can only solve so much. I only have so much power here. And it's got a weird pop down on the lower left like blocking the outlane and inlane on the left side. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'd have to take a look. I mean, I know that was pretty common on wide bodies, but none of the street levels are wide. So let's see here. I'll send you the link and you can, I'll judge it. I'll be real harsh. Well, while we're judging, I'd say let's go ahead and hit the first topic then within pinball, a deadly weapon aside, of course. And that would be skip B. We have more legal updates. I know everyone's really, in, really thrilled. Uh, actually, dun, the legal dun. updates. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. If only we had the actual law and order sound drop I could insert right there, but I'm not going to. Your <laughs> your your interpretation is close enough. There were a couple of uh, items. Uh, the main one I wanted to note is there was a hearing since our last episode uh, for, for the mom, Kevin Kulik's mom, Kathy. So the issue for those that don't remember the summary is Kevin purportedly, allegedly bought Kathy a trailer with Predator pinball money. So that's why she's involved. And the hearing was really short. It's about 16 minutes long. And we do have a link in the show notes so people can go and listen to the audio. What happens during the hearing is she uh, asks for the ability and is granted the ability to write her responses to a list of questions ahead of time, citing health issues that she has that make it difficult for her to respond verbally. So the judge has given her until July 2nd, excuse me, June 2nd to submit her written responses to the questions. And then she will still have to attend a hearing so she can respond to any you know, follow-up questions or clarifications and such. And that's scheduled to be June 8th, which I imagine there will be a recording of once that happens. So we're a few weeks off from that. Uh, the only other item, though, regarding the skip B that happened recently was there's a supplemental be- brief that the trustee filed. And that is not regarding the mom. That's regarding Kevin's wife uh, to try and reclaim the house. We talked about that extensively a couple episodes ago, I believe. Uh, So there's a document if anyone wants to read it, but it pretty much mirrors what we covered in that prior episode. So feel free to go back if you haven't heard and you want to listen to uh, our summary of what happened in the hearing with Amanda, where she wants to try and keep the house and she knows how it looks, uh, given the transfers and such. So, okay. So that's, uh, the thing is she on thanked her on Facebook was the rumor coming around or what was heard, which would not help her case in any way, shape or form. To my knowledge, the, the, the mom, Kathy regarding the trailer, 
uh, again, the hearing's so short. She's not. She wasn't really launching a, a proper defense. She she complained a lot about the audio. She didn't want the audio getting out. That she didn't think it was. She made some claims about violation of privacy, which the, you know is not true. And the judge told her that it's open court. These are public documents. People like me are allowed to share the audio of these sort of hearings because it's you know it's a it's just it's an open it's an open event. But she she complained about that. She complained about. Some of the stuff going on on the internet, which isn't really relevant, but but to her, and she citing, I think COPD said that she was just having a lot of trouble breathing, and it's very difficult for her to answer, and she just wanted a little bit of time to be able to write her responses. The issue is, my understanding is the you know screen grabs from when Predator was running and they had their website cited Kathy, the mom who has the trailer, as the legal person for Skit B. Now, I don't know if she actually has any legal training or legal background, but she was cited as doing several roles for Skit B. So in her brief hearing, she does mention that she's just a mom. That's kind of, I guess, if you want to say it's the defense, the defense she presented at the short hearing. I don't know what's going on. I'm just a mom. I'm just a mom. Uh, I take care of the grandkids. That That's her story that she's presenting. However, Kevin, at least on his website, back when this was going on and they were trying to get money to build predators, was saying, no, you're actually involved in the company. Uh, you do legal. I think she's also listed as the accountant. And we've obviously in past episodes discussed the nature of how good the accounting was with Skip B. So the mom, in regards to her involvement with the company, there's again, there's sort of a paper trail that says that she was heavily involved. Now, whether she was heavily involved for real or he just claimed that to make the company seem bigger than it really was, I don't know. And that's separate from the wife, Amanda, the wife, Amanda, who has the house, which his name was taken off of before they signed the final paperwork that we've talked about far more extensively than we ever have the trailer. She took photos. That's her claim is that she was basically hired as a contractor to take photos of the predator machine. I'm not aware if she was ever listed as actually being a part of skit B. I don't think so. So there's the, that regarding wanting to figure out the value of the camera equipment and her wanting to keep the house, but knowing it looks really bad about the transfers. That's where when in the prior episode where we discussed that, she's the one where it was, she said she had money from her grandmother and they were putting it in the Skip B account and prior, I guess, prior uh, depositions or something along those lines indicated that they were doing that to hide the money so they could stay with Medicaid. So there's that. There's, it just, it gets where you got Kathy and you have Amanda. They both have received money from Kevin or, or that's the trustee's claim. And so he's trying in both cases to claw back these purchases, the trailer for in Kathy's case and the house in Amanda's case to the estate, because if they are bought with money that was ta- obtained via fraud, then that stuff belongs to the estate. It, they can't keep it. That's the, it's the same idea in both cases, but the stories as to what happened are very different. Uh, I don't know what Kathy's claim is regarding the trailer, uh, I, I'm get, based off of what I've heard so far, it would probably be, she doesn't know where the money for the trailer came from, or she's going to say he didn't buy it and she, and she bought it instead. But that obviously will open up the issue of her thanking him on Facebook for buying the trailer. So, but that'll have to come out in another hearing. This was essentially just a hearing that gave her an extension to the, to another hearing, but there was a little bit of talk. So there might be something interesting and answerable coming out of this case in the next five to 30 years. 
<laughs> it's moving faster than I than I than I think people will stereotype the U.S. legal system as moving. But you know, it it, it can it can be frustrating when you're like, oh, well, here's another hearing to extend extend a hearing. Uh, all I can say is it's moving faster than the Zidware cases are with J-pop. So, yeah, that's the only you know silver lining I I can I can provide the trustees' office to stay in on it. They're pushing. So, and there's a lot of documentation that I think, uh, that they do, that they do have, they claim to have. So whether or not they'll ultimately be successful, we will see, but no, I actually think we'll get some more stuff here over the summer would be my expectation. So probably some decisions. Like we, we may know if some of these claims, like the virtual pin claims and stuff, if they're going to have to pay anything back or not, I think that'll be resolved in pretty short order. The house and stuff might take a little longer. I'm not sure, but but I think we'll have the hearings then. I don't think they're going to be able to get a lot of extensions because most of these uh, people aren't really working through lawyers. So they're not constantly having a lawyer file a motion for extension after extension. These are basically lay people trying to defend themselves and they're not they're not going out and asking for a bunch of extensions. Even Kathy didn't just come out and say, I need an extension. She just wanted to know she could write her her responses to the questions up front and the judge volunteered the extension to give her the time to do that. But he only gave her a couple weeks. So in all honesty, it's actually moving pretty quickly compared to the way the legal system tends to run. Well, it's just, it's been, it's been in the works for a while. I think we're just at the stage now where all the delay part, the delay parts sort of in the past and, you know, skip was one of the last ones we started to follow as a podcast. So we skipped, we kind of skipped the line and, and jumped ahead of a lot of that time where it was investigation and delay and dealing with that whole part where Kevin was asking for uh, bankruptcy. We came right at the end just before he voluntarily withdrew his option to take bankruptcy. So we skipped, you know, we skipped ahead. I think that process was going on for a couple of years. So there's already been a, a big, a big amount of time invested. We just, we didn't pay attention to all of that. We're, we're here now that we're at the juicy part. Nothing but the good stuff all the way to the end. Filet mignon for everyone. Okay. So that's Skip B. Uh, next topic, newsy topic, uh, Dutch pinball. As we noted, uh, Dutch has been doing uh, pretty consistent weekly updates now. Dutch Pinball is the ma- makers of the Big Lebowski pinball machine. Anyway, uh, what, what's been going on now is they have said, they being Dutch, has said that the, and I'm going to say this wrong, the Nivoge group, it's N-I-V-O-G-E, and the N-V and G are all capitalized, so I don't know. I'm going to call it Nivoge. The Nivoge group, uh, which is the parent company to Ara, and I believe a second uh, company as well, so it's... Yeah. So it's a company that owns Ara. Uh, they are offering a way out to Dutch Pinball regarding the impasse between Dutch and Ara. They will allow Ara to resume manufacturing of the Big Lebowskis. In exchange, they want 51% of the company. Really? Yes. I mean, that's like a full-on takeover, like hostile takeover level. It's, uh, it is a, t- I, it is a takeover, uh, you know, hostile or not, I suppose we could, <laughs> we could say that depends on intentions, but given they aren't actually buying up shares, it's, it's just, it's, it's merely an option. So what Dutch indicated, it was a real short update. They said that was the offer and that Dutch is speaking with the business consultant they've now hired on the pros and cons of allowing that sort of takeover to happen to determine whether or not it's, it's an acceptable course for them. But it, yeah, it would be obviously with 51%, they would, N- Nivoji would have decision-making authority. 
Um, it's obviously spawned a lot of discussion online. Uh, opinions are mixed on whether or not this is a smart move. But let's go ahead and talk about this because it's not just going to go legal, down a legal path. Obviously, this is a choice, so it's not like Skip B at all. So in terms of discussion here, Tony, what what do you think of this offer? Obviously, you're get, kind of getting it sprung on you. This only came out Friday, but but that's – what do you think? What do you think Dutch should do? With what Dutch has in the – with what Dutch has coming up and what they've laid out as their future and how badly they've been – hurt and how badly they've damaged their player base with everything that's happened, which could be Dutch's fault, could be Ara's fault, but it all comes down to the matter. Dutch lied for six months or more about what the actual problem was. I think this is probably a blessing to them. I think it's their best chance to get anything out of this and not just go away. I agree with you that I think this is the best solution for most parties involved, probably all part, all parties involved. Um, I, I see why some would be reluctant. I see why Dutch could be reluctant because there could be a concern about giving up creative control in the future, because if 51% of that of, of Nivoji, or I should say 51% of Dutch is controlled by Nivoji and not controlled by the, the two current owners of Dutch pinball, you know, if Novoji didn't like a particular theme or didn't like a particular course of action, and they were at, uh, you know, they were at loggerheads between them and original Dutch, Novoji wins uh, because they have that. And I'm sure that's why the condition is 51% and not 50% or 49%. It's very, I mean, obviously they didn't do the math and say this works out to the number of big Lebowski's that need to be made has a, has a monetary value. You don't have the money available uh, so we'll take it in equity in the company instead. And that mathed out perfectly to 51%. The 51% is all about control. So, but I think the, but I think, and again, this is not confirmed by Dutch and there are people who, who are defending and saying Dutch has more options here that they are probably financially. Okay. I, I am suspicious of that claim. I, I do not know, obviously, however, based off the behavior of what's been going on, I do not think Dutch Pinball has the money to finish this job at this point. I give with the increased costs that that surprised them that came from Ara. But let's remember the people were getting really upset with Dutch Pinball as of Texas Pinball Festival. You of course remember the abomination that was Bright of Pinball 25th anniversary. Oh yeah, that was and terrible. How it looked and the only thing that looked worse than the art, well no nothing did, but if anything did it would have been the price that they wanted for what ended up being a, you know, people initially thought that was going to be like a 25 unit run. And then we were hearing it was more like 120. And it, was just, it didn't make any sense. It seemed like a desperation play to try and get in new, new cash, kind of like what people accused J pop of doing with Raza and Alice to try and finish off the magic girl run. So of course people were very negative to that. After Texas pinball festival, a lot of people got optimistic because that was when Ara terminated that, supervisor or manager and when we covered that in in a prior episode and so there was a lot of people who thought oh well that was the guy and i believe it was who was sort of overseeing that contract he probably oversaw a lot of things maybe there was just an assumption that maybe and i think maybe became in a lot of people's minds probably he was terminated because he was treating dutch pinball poorly i think given how much time has passed since then i mean after his departure ara and dutch began to talk again 
And whether or not that happened because the guy was gone or not, I could see why people would tie it together. The fact that nothing has was hammered out and production didn't resume, I think has to me, demonstrably proven that it wasn't the manager abusing the contract. That's the problem. Ara still thinks that they deserve whatever that manager was saying they deserved. And Dutch doesn't agree or can't agree. You know, they either don't agree that that's what the contract says, which is what they've kind of presented publicly as their stance and is a reasonable. I mean, I could I could believe that or they just can't afford to do what the contract says. So they're desperately trying to get it clawed back to what they originally kind of budgeted but ours doesn't seem to be budging on that so the ma- the manager wasn't the problem i don't think uh, at this point it just uh, it, if it was that clear that, that there was a manager at ara who has gone rogue and doing who knows what skimming money or just being mean th- that should have been resolved by now it's it's been well it's been months so that's not it yeah no it's definitely deeper than that i mean whatever reason he was released for it was not because of this or solely because of this because they've not made any changes to the way they are acting and all this talk about uh having another manufacturer that they were going to turn to we have to remember that other manufacturer was always going to have to build the bride of pinbot 25 first that was their plan and then after that they could finish off the big lebowski runs which doesn't satisfy a lot of people who bought you know, the big Lebowski was sold first. Why do they have to wait to be second sort of thing? There's nothing that they've presented that would give me any assurance that Dutch pinball is sitting on a pile of money still. And they're just being really frugal about it. These early adopters or or, uh, pre-orderers or however, whatever term you want to use early achievers, I think is the official name that they were given by Dutch who paid the company in full. My understanding is people have asked Dutch for refunds per the refund policy, and they are told they cannot have refunds at this point. And the only reason for that to happen would be that there is no money for refunds. That would be my thought. I can't think of any other reason. I mean, if people, because a lot of those early achievers paid less than what the machine now lists for. I believe if if you wanted to get in, if you were to go to Cointaker and say, I want to buy a big Lebowski, what's the grand total going to be? It's $10,000 is my understanding. But I think early achievers were more around 8,500. So from a company standpoint, if cash for refunds isn't a problem, why not refund an early achiever? And then when you get this thing sorted out, you still have your 300 units or whatever you're planning to make, sell it for 2,500 more bucks. Yay. Or 1,500. Well, that would make sense if they actually had any money to repay those people. And if they weren't deathly afraid that them leaving one person getting a refund would start a stampede for all those people, leaving them with money that they don't have. Right. So I'm not going to say that Dutch Pinball is broke, but I don't think they have the capital available to switch to another manufacturer or to satisfy what Ara wants in terms of money per unit at this point. I, I just, I, otherwise I think they would have just gone ahead and done it unless they, I mean, I could see them refusing Ara still if the issue is that they'll lose money on each machine. It just ended up getting too, too high of a cost. But then under either scenario, I think this is your only way out because now the parent company it gets to make money on both ends, basically. They'll get 51% of each sale of these remaining machines that Dutch needs to move, and they'll get their whatever their ownership share stake in Ara is, 
on the construction side of it. And, you know, they are had to gear up to do all this pinball manufacturer. Uh, Nivoji may, I could see them thinking, you know what, being into the games business could be useful. We could maybe grow this over time. And it gives us a re, you know, it gives us a good hope of Ara continuing to actually be able to use what investments they had to make into the equipment that is necessary for building pinball, because that wasn't, whether well, a contract manufacturer, they weren't a pinball contract manufacturer. That's a new thing for them. Right. And that could be a very good thing for them as a step forward as a large international or company, uh, Everything I found on them when I was looking for them is all in Dutch. I think it's Dutch. Mm, probably they're in the Netherlands. I had to rely on Google Translate. So it looks like, I mean, them and the other company they're part of are both electronics and manufacturing and stuff like that. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to say it's the only, it's the only option. I think it's the most feasible option. And I also think that the 51% ask is reasonable. I think that. Unfortunately, Dutch pinball, and you mentioned the the deception that th- that was undertaken earlier, uh, late last year. It's uh, they're just as a as a business entity. I think they're going to have a lot of trouble recovering their reputation from how this has gone. It's just been so shaky that this could go a long way to helping with that. So if they actually want to do more than just the Big Lebowski. I think this gives them the path. And I think the only thing they have to trade at this point of any value is their equity. And I, I can completely understand why they would be reluctant to want to give up controlling share in, in the company, but they just don't have anything else to trade. And I think the if, if anything else, they need to just try and finish the Big Lebowski run. And if that means they're done with it afterwards and they just walk away or just walk, you know, walk away and keep 49% of whatever Nivoji can do with it, you know what? You can always form a new company later. Yeah, I think it would be in their best interest, but I'm not a businessman, so we will see what they actually decide to do. But I think this is probably their absolute best chance. Oh, and I have looked at that link you sent on to me regarding Deadly Weapon. My favorite part is the guy with the gun near the lower right slingshot. (laughs) I have always wanted to wear a shirt that was made out of a picnic tablecloth. And so I hope to someday find that shirt and wear it proudly. Speaking of artistic design, though, you may not be a businessman, so we'll have to turn to your artistic prowess instead to discuss total nuclear annihilation. There was a stream, Dead Flip uh, had another stream of total annihilation, well, now total nuclear annihilation, uh, with uh, the gameplay as it's been evolved by Scott Denasi. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, which, as we've noted, Spooky Pinball is going to be manufacturing the machine. They revealed on the stream, and then the next day, Spooky released a high-res version of what the translate is going to be. And uh, we have a we have the translate up on our Facebook page, so if anyone wants to take a look at it, you can. It's got a lot of purple involved. It gives what I consider a very 80s vibe. There are a lot of Easter eggs. The upper left area has a woman with a green visor and a messenger bag. Uh, with a nuclear explosion even further upper left from her head, uh, nuclear barrels to her lower left side, and then off on the right, you see some guys with guns and lasers pew-pewing around with a tank and such. And then in the middle, it says total nuclear annihilation and a little pinball below it. Well, that's a wonderful description. Thank you. I, <laughs> I like it. I don't think it's 
I mean, it screams kind of like cheesy 80s to me, and I don't actually have a problem with that. I did notice it's got a guy who looks a little like M. Bison on it, and <laughs> a, a little yeah. picture on that camera screen. Uh, and, but I, I like it. Uh, I love this game. So the fact that the art is kind of humorous and fun looking, it works for me. I can't say I ever had anything particular in mind because it was a Whitewood when we saw it. Uh, the only thing I suppose is I thought maybe they'd keep the logo kind of as it was carved in the back box version and they've gone with a different font style than that. But other than that, there was never anything to really compare the back box that we'd been seeing like at Texas to what was here. Now I think it fits with the theme as I understood the gameplay to be described, but I, you know, I just, I thought, yeah, it's neat. It, I think it, it's got the eighties feel that once I understood that's what it was going for, I was like, okay, yeah, makes sense to me. I like the little crystal cola up at the top veil, not so veiled reference to crystal Pepsi, uh, crystal Pepsi, how we do not miss you, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like it. I think it reminds me of a, something that wants to be overly eighties, uh, kind of in that, uh, night begins to shine sort of way teen Titan style. Yeah, that was, I love that song. <laughs> it's, it's so totally cheesy 80s. It's, it is, it, and it makes everything you perfect. you got to embrace it. That's what I always think of is that, uh, for those that don't don't know where we're talking, there was a Teen Titans episode that uh, has this song that's total cheeseball 80s, and it's about how inspirational songs you know motivate you to be, to do your best and be strong and all that. And the artistic style taken in a lot of the episode is in the 80s style that w- that we were familiar with. So anyway, it's kind of fun. Okay. Well, that was really it for total nuclear annihilation. Um, I believe spookies indicated no more art reveals until the whole thing is done, or at least the whole art package is done. So we probably won't see any more sneak peeks until, well, no no more sneaks, just real peeks when they're ready. Uh, Another piece of pinball news, however, stern pinball. No, this is not the long awaited for star Wars announcement. You will have to wait longer yet. This is the Encore Edition, which seems to be functioning as a Volt Edition for another, because it's rumored that Steve Ritchie is doing the Star Wars game, another Steve Ritchie game, uh, ACDC, the granddaddy music pin of them all, except, of course, for all the older music pins like Elvis and Guns N' Roses and Rolling Stones. But <laughs> uh, I, it's noteworthy because I think for a lot of people, ACDC sort of marked the beginning of the big stern resurgence of having a whole lot of really successful tables. And it remains extremely popular. The Encore Edition will be for both the Pro and the Premium. The art for the Pro has been revealed. It's similar to the original. They've made some slight modifications, some band member uh, changes. The the Angus face that was on the covering where the lower play field would be on the premium version has been changed, uh, which that was often, that was the most criticized aspect. So that's not surprising that that, that got moved around. Otherwise it looks very, very much the same. I believe the pro runs with what the latter pro versions did of the original run. So it doesn't have the stationary bell. It does have a swinging bell, which the stationary bell was a big complaint on the pros uh, led light package. It, it is running the, the, the SAM system. They didn't convert to spike and that's consistent with what they've done with other vault editions. Uh, premium is not yet shown. Uh, they've just noted it will be an alternate premium 
are slightly different than the original premium art package. And I believe I've not read my own confirmation, but I have seen people have indicated that Stern has said they are not planning to do a vault edition of the Lucy of the Lucy model. So anyway, uh, thoughts on ACDC, Tony. I like ACDC. It's a good table. Uh, we had, there was a Lucy at 503 or 503, 403 for a while. And I enjoyed it. I like the Lucy art package. I'm sad that there's not going to be another chance to get one without finding one in the wild that somebody's selling to get. But I think that the play field that we've seen does look better than the original pro play field. It is an obvious game to be vaulted, uh, or on cord, but it is a popular game. I mean, everybody I know who's played it really likes it. Uh, even the people who don't like it don't hate it. It's better than a lot of the other music pens. So I think it's going to, it's got a special place and it makes a lot of sense to have it as the next level of vault. Yeah. It's, I think it was a pretty obvious pick. I, I was a bit surprised at the time of the announcement just because. Obviously, the rumor the rumor mill has been swirling like mad about Star Wars. That Star Wars wasn't announced on Star Wars Day made people think that it will be it will be released sooner rather than later. And you know, it, it, I guess it could raise some questions about whether or not there is concern that this would cannibalize Aerosmith sales. There's been speculation about whether or not Star Wars would cannibalize Aerosmith sales, and they wanted Aerosmith to kind of bake longer. Price point wise, though, um, again, I've only seen the the retail price listing, and with Stearns, you you have to math in that it's different when you contact the distributors. But my takeaway was that this is probably moving at the same price as Aerosmith is. I'm not thinking this is back down to like what 2015 prices were for Dot Matrix uh, Sam systems. So I, you know, I don't know regarding that, but as a as something to release because there's demand. It makes sense to me that Stern watches the used market. I think this and Tron were, were the two most obvious SAM system pins that that would warrant vaults. And beyond that, the only, I'd have to say the only other thing I would think of is if you wanted to go back uh, all the way to White Star board sets and say we're remaking Lord of the Rings. Those are the three that command a price that you would be able to sell new at basically what they're selling used for. My original guess for the next vault would have been Tron, but ACDC makes sense. So we'll see. I wouldn't be amazed if we didn't get a Tron in the next couple of years uh, as a VE, or unless there's just not the, they don't feel there's the desire for it that there seems to be from everyone I've talked to and everything I've seen. But they'll definitely not do the price any price changes. They'll they'll be what vaults are going for now. So uh, only one final pinball topic today. I have an interview that I previously recorded with Jerry Stellenberg. He's the founder of Multimorphic Incorporated, which manufactures the P3 pinball platform. So we're gonna drop that in here and give you guys some learning on what the P3 is, because Tony and I have always tried to summarize it, but it is so complex <laughs> that. I don't think we keep doing a great job. So yeah, we did a pretty bad job about it. I think, well, it's so complicated. They've got so many features that are just an evolution to what we're used to on physical pinball. Uh, So we're going to let Jerry come in here and explain exactly what this, uh, this piece of machinery can do for you. So here it is. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Dennis with the Eclectic Gamers Podcast, and I'm here with Jerry Stellenberg, the founder of Multimorphic Incorporated. Jerry, thanks so much for coming on the show and taking some time out to talk with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Dennis. 
All right. Well, first, I want to say congratulations on getting to the production phase for the P3 pinball platform. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a process. It's good to get to this stage. No, yeah. no. Well, it's really exciting. Uh, and, I mean, I've done what I can uh, somewhat poorly to try and follow uh, what all goes into this because your technology is so far in advance of what we're used to seeing with traditional pinball machines. Well, y- yes. Uh, I'm a technology guy, and I got kind of bored with what was going on in the industry, um, the games I had in my house. So I came up with all these ideas to do new things, to be able to you know, add innovations and new gameplay styles and new features to the machine and um they say pinball's hard making pinball's hard that's what they say (laughs) i don't actually find making traditional pinball hard what i find hard is bringing new ideas and new things into pinball because it's such a traditional hobby people people like what they what they know Oh, sure, sure. I, you know, I think we see a lot of that in discussions on pinball forums, for example, where you see talk about even things as much as, and, and one of the things you went with, uh, you know, the traditional flipper layout. People don't like it when you mess around with the flippers. And, and even that was a, was a struggle because ours look different, and, and they are different. We don't, well, we can't drill holes through the playfield because our playfield isn't a piece of wood. It's a, it's a dynamic uh, 1080p LCD display. So you drill holes through that, it doesn't like it. So, so we had to come up with new ideas to mount the flippers, and they work identically to traditional flippers. They have the same length linkages. They have the, the, the same angular pulls. Everything's pretty much identical except for the fact that it's mounted above instead of below, and then you can see the linkages, and it looks different. Therefore, people think it plays different because your mind lies to you when you see things differently. In terms of the uh, P3 pinball platform, the most we've ever really done is try and describe some of the games. So I was wondering if you could, much like you've just done with the with the screen that you're sort of playing on, could you sort of walk through what uh, an explanation of what the P3 pinball platform is and how it, in other ways, that it also differs from traditional pinball machines and in yeah. some ways that it's the same as traditional pinball. You, you want me to talk about my product? Just, just real- a little bit. Huh? Think of, a slight promotional opportunity, oh, which incidentally okay. for the listeners, we will have a link uh, to Multimorphic in the show notes where people can go if they want to submit uh, to reserve uh, a P3 or read more f- about the company. But I'm assuming they like to consume things via audio if they're actually listening to, to me <laughs> prattle on every other week. So... There you go. The floor is yours. Yes. So you described it as the P3 pinball platform. And that word platform is a fairly new concept to the pinball industry. So, it, but, but it's very, I mean, it's not a new term in terms of consumer electronics and video game consoles and, and, and computers. Those are all called platforms, video game platforms, computer platforms, your mobile phone platform, because these are devices your video game console or your mobile phone, they're devices that can run any number of applications on them. So we've done that with the physical pinball machine. We've taken this traditional pinball, uh, basically the, the, the same traditional pinball machine that you see all the other manufacturers making. It's about the same size. It's got the same um, flipper layout, as you mentioned. It's got physical shots, real ball, real bumpers, real ramps, real loops, all those things. But we turned it into a platform in the sense that we can change the software, we can change the hardware, we can change the physical shot layout so that we give the people who own the machine the ability to enjoy lots of different games and lots of different gameplay styles. So the way we do that is 
by two things. One, we made the machine very modular. And by, when I say modular, I mean physically modular. So we can easily slide in and out new flipper assemblies, or we can slide in and out new physical shot layouts. Um, the back third portion of the playfield, which a playfield is traditionally just a, an almost four foot long by about two feet wide piece of wood with stuff mounted to it. In our machine, the back third is a separate um, construction from the front two-thirds. The back third is more or less traditional in the sense that it's a piece of wood with physical things mounted to it. Um, our first game, Lexi Lightspeed, has physical ball locks and ramps and loops and pop bumpers and all those things. And the front two-thirds of the game is, like I said earlier, a, a touchscreen. It's, it's basically a touchscreen LCD monitor. It's not actually a touchscreen. It's really just a, a display but over top of that, we built touchscreen technology so that that physical pinball that you're, that you're batting around the playfield with the flippers, uh, the system can track the position of that ball and it can interact with graphics on the screen just like your finger would on, a, on an iPad or a, a mobile phone or whatever. So we've taken concepts that consumers are comfortable with, you know, a, a physical device interacting with virtual devices, like I said like an iPad or a mobile phone or something like that. And then we've taken that physical pinball concept, which is what we all know and love about pinball, which is that physical pinball rolling around and hitting targets and going up ramps and going through shots and gates and hitting spinners and all those things. And we merged those two together into this weird combination of physical pinball, virtual interactions, multiple game capabilities, and essentially it's a physical pinball platform right and as as you pointed out you have a lot of flexibility in terms of the variety of games that you're able to offer because of that back thirds modularity i was wondering if you could maybe go through some of the uh, other features uh, beyond the screen itself that you can do via the integrated technology that you have embedded into the platform so for example one of the things that i learned about fairly recently uh, a little bit after the latest texas pinball festival was you have a an internet-enabled pinball game, to my knowledge, the first uh, physical pinball game that's actually internet-enabled for competitive play. And so you have something obviously integrated in there to be able to allow that to communicate on the internet. But part and parcel with that are things like your sophisticated cheat detection features. And just so those sort of elements that are sort of newer to people that maybe have only really gotten experience with physical pinball. Yeah, good point. So there's there's core technology, and then there are things that that, that core technology enables. Um, there is a standard, um, basically an off-the-shelf motherboard, an Intel motherboard, and that big display we have in the playfield. Those are standard computer pieces of technology. That motherboard, we have a, a Wi-Fi card in it, so we can talk over the network. That touchscreen display I was telling you about can track the position of the ball. And these are things that most machines have these days. Uh, some machines have embedded controller systems. Other machines have off-the-shelf motherboard style of computers. They're all just computers. They're all you know, processors running code that somebody writes. Um, in our case, because we have this standard computer, we have access to communi- community standard um, tools, such as the game engine we're using to develop our games, which is the Unity 3D game engine. We have access to networking libraries. We have access to all these high-level things that programmers are comfortable with. Um, And the fact that we're a platform and we can change the software on the system 
means we can start experimenting with a whole breadth of functions and features that traditional pinball companies don't want to risk doing because they're putting a lot of effort into creating a single game on a single machine. So some of the things you mentioned, this, uh, this network competitive gameplay thing is something we can experiment with because it's just another game on our system that uses the core technology that we have. So this game you're spe- speaking about specifically is called Heads Up, and we showed it at TPF this year. It, it, it basically connects two machines together. And those machines can be sitting next to each other in the same room or they can be across the world from each other because they're talking across that Wi-Fi connection. And so somebody playing on one machine can interact with somebody playing on a completely different machine. And I think you're right. I don't think anyone's done that before. That cheat detection you're talking about, is I showed it off in a demo at, a, at Pinball Expo a couple years ago because I was using my hand to demonstrate some of the features in Lexi and I was hitting the targets with my hand and... When I did that, it would bring up this message on the screen, and it would sound this siren. It would play the, the audio for a siren saying that I'm a cheater. Yeah, it was very judgmental. <laughs> well, because we're using that touchscreen technology to track the position of the ball, the system knows if you're shooting a shot from the flipper all the way up the play field to those targets. So it doesn't matter if you have the glass on or off. You can play a you you can play a, a you know an honest game using the flippers on the ball with the glass off. So just detecting if the glass were off doesn't mean you can't cheat or you can cheat. Um, you don't have to cheat with the glass off. So, But by tracking that ball as it goes up the play field, one, we can detect when you hit the flipper. Two, we can detect if the ball was on the flipper when you hit it. Three, we can detect the speed and the direction of that ball as it's moving up the play field. Four, we can detect because of the speed when it should hit things. And if all those things don't, make sense they don't follow logical rules of physics then we know something was weird and we can detect cheating when we detect cheating we we can do it for a lot of different reasons but we can you know disable entry into the high score we can even disable modes we can say you can't get to the finale or the wizard mode if you don't play through it honestly forget that you know you know buy a game and you play it for a while and you're like i want to see what the wizard mode is and then you pull the glass off and start hitting switches around and, until you can you know, progressively the game. We we can detect that, and we can disable it if we want to. Yeah, well, make make them go watch Bowen's video of it instead. Yeah, right. Yeah. But <laughs> but combine those two things. Combine the cheat detection with competitive internet gameplay, and you can finally have a somewhat fair system where two people, not in the same location, not on the same machine, can play against each other and. You know, you can detect all the unfair advantages that one person has, and you could potentially invalidate the score. You can you can handicap the score so that the other player gets more points or whatever you want. Right, and it does. It really does expand uh, options there. Options that we we've seen on the computer side. Uh, when we talked about heads up on the show, I know that was Tony's big concerns. The first thing he thought of, because he plays a lot of competitive video games, was well, cheating, online cheating. That was yeah. his immediate concern. Like, well, how would we know unless you're recording, you know, live streaming it or something? It's like, uh, oh, well, look, here's a whole video, and it's, it's showing, <laughs> it's showing us. In fact, there, uh, the technology already has that capability, which is, which is very impressive. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's all these little things that, that we can do and we're playing around with it and we're just still trying to find a home for them. Right? It may or may not make sense for someone to turn on some of these features, but because we have this platform and this core technology, we can enable so much more. 
So speaking of, you know, finding a home for the technology that's all fully embedded within the platform, I'm curious what, what's the vision of Multimorphic regarding the P3 platform? So things like the, like the target end user market, uh, plans for getting additional games developed, like what, what if someone wants to develop for you? How, how can they get involved with that? Just sort of all that, but, but mostly I'm, I'm interested in understanding what the, what the broad vision is as a company. Okay. So. Like I said earlier, I got bored with traditional pinball. Um, I had 11 machines in my house at one point. That's that's more than some and a lot less than a lot of others in the industry. But um, I got bored of those games. And I was sitting there watching the market over the last you know 15 or 20 years. And we've seen it shift from locations to the arcades and bowling alleys and, and bars and things to consumers. You, you don't usually go out to play these games anymore unless you, you're lucky with a location near you. Usually people are buying them and putting them in their homes now. And in my mind, that traditional pinball machine, which is a single-themed game that takes up a lot of room in your house and is very expensive, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the consumer. So we came up with this multi-game platform model. We came up with these technologies that we could integrate to attract you know, general electronic consumers and, and game players, both physical pinball game players and hopefully even video game players because of all the video interactions and potentially in the games. And we developed this system and we want to be, I want Multimorphic to be like a Nintendo or like a Sony or a Microsoft with their platforms. Um, Nintendo comes up, comes out with this, this uh, use the Wii as an example from a few years back. They come up with a Wii, they develop some games for it, their original games are mostly proof of concept, and then they follow that up with you know some some pretty cool content and cool games for it. And at the same time, they allow other people to take advantage of their installed customer base and create new games for that platform. So Nintendo makes the platform and sells games. They allow other companies like EA Sports, for instance, to make games for the platform and sell games. The the companies win, the game developers win because they don't have to go develop their own consoles. They can make use of other people's consoles to sell their content. The manufacturer of the game console wins because now they've created this device and they have lots of other companies filling up the game libraries with content. And of course the consumers win because they bought this Wii and they're not just stuck with what they have. They can go and continually add content, new content as it's developed. They pay a lot of money for the platform. I mean, it's all relative, of course, for a video game console, maybe three or four hundred dollars, and then games on top of that are twenty, thirty, forty dollars. So they can they can build up their game library a lot cheaper than they can buying individual machines. And pinball, hopefully, will become the same way with platforms like ours, where you still pay a lot of money for the platform, and you have to because these are big, complex mechanical devices that everyone wants them to be super cheap, like they were back thirty or thirty or forty years ago, but the reality is it takes a lot of money to design and make these things. But once somebody's paid all that money once, they can add that content that we develop and that other people will develop for the platform and grow their game library for a fraction of the price of buying new machines. So we're, 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 we want to be like Nintendo where we develop this console, we make a game or two a year, and that's a physical game layout, a new play field, one or two times a year, and we, we've created this open development kit whereby other people can learn how to build games. They can get sample code. They can get uh, 
access to our electronic specs, to our physical specs, to our cabinet specs, so they can make their own artwork, and they can create content, and then the, the consumers can grow their libraries the same way they would with any of those other platforms. Okay, so you would actually have third-party developers is the plan to create, in addition to your first-party content. But yes. Okay. That's that's, obviously, that's quite different from what we're used to on the pinball side and exceedingly common in the video game world. Right. There there are all these models in in the electronics or in the consumer consumer businesses. We don't have to create all those things ourselves. We can leverage what we've learned from these other industries and just – integrate that into pinball. We've seen the video game world go through the same thing, right? 20 or 30 years ago, you might buy a physical machine that has Donkey Kong or Pac-Man or whatever. And nowadays, there's still a few people that do that just because they like collecting them, but most people are buying that platform version of those video games. So there's precedence for the model. It just hasn't been applied in an acceptable way to pinball yet, and we're trying to do that. Okay, so in terms of the on the third-party development, is the the plan regarding the modules that those would be they'll all program around those first party in-house designed modules or would there be an idea that third party individuals could actually create that back third layout on their own in some way oh we hope third parties develop their own physical modules we we've put those specs the electrical interface and the mechanical constraints for those modules in the specs as part of a developer's kit we will provide people with blank play fields that they can drop in and they can go add their ramps and loops and targets and those things. Um, and we can do that because of our modular control system. We, uh, I don't know if you know, but Multimorphic way back in the day started developing boards. We developed the P-Rock board, which a lot of people are using to build custom machines these days. And then we followed that P-Rock board up with a modular set of driver boards and switch boards so that you can decide how many boards you need to support the number of features you want in your game. So we built this modular control system into the P3, and we stub off the end of the buses for these controller boards, allowing anybody to buy one driver board, two driver board, one switchboard, two switchboards, whatever, put them on their custom playfield modules, attach them to the P3, slide the playfield module in, and you have a whole new game that somebody else developed. Okay, so let's say you've now convinced everyone they want one. They're excited. So uh, let's uh, let's do some walkthrough here. As I, as I mentioned uh, earlier, that there will be a link in the show notes so people can go to the, go to the website. But if you could just sort of summarize, basically, what does it cost to get into into this? Uh, you know, uh, sort of the first time go in. What what you get with it in terms of games, etc. So just sort of from the consumer perspective, what can they expect uh, when when the shipping starts? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a good time and it's a bad time to learn about the platform. It's a good time because we just reached production and we are now starting to ship these platforms, um, which means that very soon people that are interested can you know sign up and buy a new one and get that shipped relatively soon. Um, currently, we're in our first production run. We have our second production run full. That we'll be doing in July or August time frame. And then after that, we're not taking orders for after that what we want to do is build up inventory and sell machines to people as they sign up so the base platform is a p3 it comes with the game lexi lightspeed escape from earth which was designed by dennis nordman and sound by david thiel a couple of big guys in the industry uh, developing content for us that hopefully gives some credibility to the fact that you can do traditional style and very cool games on the system 
But the P3, it costs, it's just under $10,000. It's ninety eight seventy five. It comes with Lexi Lightspeed Escape from Earth. And then on top of that, you can choose to add things like the Cannon Lagoon playfield layout. You can choose to add any number of mini-games like the game Rocks, the game Barnyard for the little kids. Um, there's a, there's a, a mini-game version of Lexi Lightspeed that is addressing people that just want to play multiball. So it's a game called Lexi Lightspeed Secret Agent Showdown. You can buy that, and you can add it to the system, and, and then basically build up your game library. Games with playfield modules, those physical things, they obviously cost more than games that are software only. So a game like Cannon Lagoon, which is a pretty simple shot layout in order just to give people you know, more of a redemption-style feel to their gameplay, that's going to cost about $1,500 for the Playfield layout with the Ken Lagoon software and artwork for the cabinet. Um, a new game that we're developing right now is called Cosmic Kart Racing. It's going to have a, its own cool physical shot layout with ramps and loops and be a very high-speed flowing game. We predict that's going to be about a $2,500 game. And for that, you would get your Playfield module, the software, and the cabinet artwork for that. Um, if people were to go to the website now, um, we're not selling the actual machine, uh, but what we will be doing in the next couple of weeks is enabling a sign-up list so that people can get in a queue so that once we're in the third production run, we'll email people in the order they signed up and ask them if they want to follow through with a game purchase. How many units are you doing per production run? Well, the first one we're doing 25 just to get our feet wet. The second one is significantly bigger. We're not discussing uh, specific numbers, but um, the second one is quite a bit bigger. That one's also full and sold out. Um, and then after that, we, it doesn't even matter. We just want to start building up inventory. And once we build up inventory, people can go to the site, buy a machine, and get it shipped to them within a couple days instead of now where they pre-ordered and it takes a few months to get their machines. Okay. Makes sense. Well, you ran through all the questions I had. Did you have anything else you want to talk about regarding P3? Or have you had any questions for me? I'm more than happy to try and answer them. Well, I think the big thing for people, for me to get out there for people, is that the, the P3 and this platform concept, the general perception that we get when we talk about it online or talk about it on, a, on an audio uh, medium like this one, is they don't quite get it. When they get it is when they get in front of a machine and touch it and play it and realize it's physical pinball with that real ball and real flippers and those kind of things. So I encourage everybody to find a show where there's a P3 and play it. Because when you play it, that's when you understand exactly what it is. It's a tactile experience where we can change up the graphics, we can change up the physical things. Now we'll have a machine with... A couple of our customers at a couple shows around the country here shortly. We expect it to get to the Northwest show in Tacoma. We expect it to be at California Extreme. We expect to have one at Fantastic out on the East Coast. So if you're at all interested in the P3, because you can't you know, go to the website and buy one today because we don't have that inventory built up, what you can do is get to a show and play it and experience it and uh, see what it's all about. Well, Jerry, thanks again for coming on to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. I really appreciate it and for explaining to the listeners uh, all this depth in terms of the, technolo the technology that's behind the uh, P3 platform. Of course, Dennis. Thanks for having me. Always always happy to talk about the platform. It's, 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 still, it's been five years. It's still a, this huge passion of mine, and, and I'm excited to get it out there, start shipping it, and seeing people play it.
Yeah. Well, you've really, uh, it's quite an accomplishment that you've, you've, you've executed for so long and that, that, that vision is coming true and the production lines are rolling. Uh, so it should be a really exciting year. Yeah, we'll start seeing them in customers' homes, and hopefully we start seeing lots of videos online surfacing on people playing it. Yeah, you got to get Jack Danger to do one. <laughs> he's offered a couple times. We just have to sync up. Oh, yeah. It's always, he has, you know, he's all up north in the cold. Yeah, so. he's in the Chicago area, yeah. right? We're down yeah. in Austin, Texas. so It's, it's so cool. easy for him to get over to Stern or Spooky. but Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks again. I appreciate it. All right, Dennis. Take care. Thank you. Well, that was my interview, and I extend my thanks again to Jerry for coming onto the show and giving us an explanation of P3. And that's it for pinball. So let's roll on into video games. Tony, lead us off. We must be near something meaningful to you. Wow, that was terrible. That was uh, really bad. Oh, it was. It was. It was only sort of bad. It was actually uh, okay. It was. I'm okay. sorry. I'm sorry. I mean that awesome segue, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's the sort of respect I I kind of need. For the last couple of weeks, and I mentioned it last episode, I've been playing near uh, Automata or Automata. I wonder how they want it pronounced. Is it Automata? I don't know. Near Automata. Let's go with that. And it has been a pretty interesting game. It's a pretty standard uh, hack and slash style game. But what really makes this game glow is this story because the story... Uh, actually makes you care, care about what is going on and the people, uh, that you're involved with, or at least it did in my case because of how it comes at what it's a fairly standard idea, uh, because it's takes place in the future and you're an android who's, who's trying to defeat aliens that have captured earth so humans can return back. But you quickly find there's a, it's a lot deeper and there's a lot more to the story. And it does a really good job, both covering the gameplay mechanics in a meta way and, uh, covering how you, uh, get through the game. But it has an interesting system where it has multiple endings. There's like five endings or something like that. But instead of being a normal game where, oh, you've got the loser path ending and a winner path ending, or, and then you go through and replay it and you get a slightly different game ending because you played the new game plus mode. Uh, in this game, every time you replay, when you replay the game, you play as a different character. So I beat the char- game as the character they start you as. And then my second playthrough, I'm playing as a character who helped her out but what didn't spend the entire game with her and things are different. So whenever he was gone, I'm playing the parts where he was doing something where the main character from the first playthrough was off doing something else and he fights differently. So it does a good job of making it be an actual different game Um, or not just a repeating the exact same thing every time. And there's several more playthroughs where you play different characters. I'm only on the second by second playthrough currently. So it is, uh, I don't have a feel for the other playthroughs, but I've been enjoying it quite a lot. How is the, the combat in terms of, of difficulty? I've had, I've had mixed 
hack and slash experiences. Like some games like the Ninja Gaidens, when they got to the hack and slash stage, were extremely difficult where the combo memorization patterns of the enemies, you, you if you didn't do that, uh, didn't know how to play defensively or dodge appropriately, you really got owned really fast. And I've played other hack and slashes where, yeah, you might be able to take things out faster if you use the appropriate weapon change-ups and such. But by and large, it wasn't a particularly grueling experience. I don't think it's a very grueling experience. There are some fights that are very real challenges if you don't utilize all of the tricks uh, at your disposal. But it is definitely not a Ninja Gaidan level of smash you in the face. Okay. Well, Ninja is somewhat unfair of me as well, but it is the hardest one I can think of, so... But but I it's just a mix. I've some hack and slashes seem really about you know you need to memorize those combos, and others are a little more forgiving. Yeah, th- this one's more forgiving, um, especially because I'm just playing on normal. I'm not playing it on super hard or super easy or anything like that. I'm just on a normal play mode, and it's pretty forgiving. And like the uh, you change up like the second character you play through, he has the ability to hack machines. So you do, you're doing a lot of hacking and they show hacking as a kind of almost asteroids like gameplay feature where you're literally a little triangle with some armor on it and a gun that shoots as you circle and try and take out targets in a little almost mini game type thing. Okay. So it is a mini, it's, they do the hacking mini game style. Yeah, it's a mini game style, but it's a, but it's hacking with quotation marks, but it's just like a little shooter. It's kind of like, um, like a Smash TV style or an Akara Warrior style two win stick shooter. Okay. I get uh, it. Is how the hacking game is. And it's interesting. I mean, you kill blocks and though there's a sphere, I've got to take it out. Sometimes I have to take other things out before I can get, take the sphere out because it's got a shield. Well, not getting taken out by all the stuff it's shooting and throwing at me. So it's a fun little game. Um, and it definitely makes the playthrough different and gives him a decent weapon because his actual attack is terrible. What? Why is it so bad? Well, you just got used because your first character is a combat model android and is really powerful, and he is not a combat model. He is a surveillance model, so he's obviously not to the same level of fighting capabilities. For your third playthrough, they'll probably have you be the concession stand model who will pour you a beverage. Yeah, that's what that, I think that's what it is, is you are a soda machine. And Soda Drinker Pro 2, <laughs> <laughs> a terrible looking game, Soda Drinker Pro, which I have not played. But <laughs> now, the, now they do interesting. Some of the like the meta like uh, play in the game is uh, there is no autosave feature. Mm, ouch. Are there save points? There are save points. And and so you can save that way. But the way they cover the saves is basically when you save, it's you're backing your, you're backing your brain up to the cloud. So when you replay, so when you die, they just drop the last backup into a new body and drop you into play. So like if you have the, you can get these plug-in chips that you can use to modify your abilities. It's kind of like a skill tree thing, but you can swap chips on the fly and have multiple pre-set up uh, chip sets. So if, oh, I need a chip set 
for defensive. If there's a really strong enemy that I want to be able to play more defensive, I can go to a defensive chipset, which will be different than my normal like travel chipset or my heavy combat chipset. Uh, you can, you can adjust between them, but any chi- if you die and your body drops, any chips that were installed are gone. Uh, you can get them back by going and retrieving your body, but you have to remember to activate a different chipset before you go and retrieve your body because otherwise you are going to be at a massive disadvantage. Well, that's a really cool way to integrate it in from an immersion standpoint with how yeah, the, sa- it, the saving and the, the, the body, the body thing uh, is uh, I've seen a few games kind of do that. Obviously dark souls kind of did that with the XP, but not with the equipment, which was, I always thought very strange. But the the idea of backing up and dropping into the new bodies relatively unique in my experience. Yeah, it was a pretty unique uh, idea, and it works pretty well. I enjoy it, and I think it really helps with the immersion. Now, the one thing I will say, and what I from what I've seen has been the uh, kind of a wall that some people have not been able to get past. From what I've read online, um, I did it with no problem, but. The opening chapter of the game is about an hour long and there are no save points. You cannot save until you finish the opening chapter. Better not mess up. Yeah. And there were a couple points when I was playing where it was a near thing. I thought I was going to die. But it is basically the, there was a demo for this game and it's basically the demo with a few things added on. And the other interesting thing about this game is how it changes from it'll be standard hack and slash. And then as you move through the map and you go to different places, it'll go from being, you know, a third person over the shoulder kind of hack and slashy game. It'll rotate and be a side scroller. And then it'll rotate and be a top down, uh, a top down like shooter hack and slash type game. So it kind of changes modes based upon where you are and what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's weird, but I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm enjoying it quite a lot. It's, I would say it's definitely the, my favorite game I've played this year. Oh, high praise then. Yeah. It, it is a seriously, I mean, the story's interesting. The gameplay's, uh, fun. And even though, I mean, it's a hack and slash, so the combat gets a little repetitive. It's not terribly repetitive. It's not as bad as some hack and slashes I've played where it's literally, a A A X A A A X A A A X. Okay, is everything dead? Yeah, it does. It's not that bad. Oh, okay. You're not getting blisters on your thumb. No, no, not at all. It it, it doesn't. And like I said, it's got some fun stuff and some good. It, the good story. It's the story that surprises me because I didn't really expect a story this strong out of a game like this. Well, I'm playing another uh, story-driven game, a game that you have played actually quite a, a ways back, and that is XCOM 2. Yeah, you finally got to it. I, I finally did. I finished up ReCore, uh, and yeah, my, my takeaway on ReCore, I guess because I didn't summarize it because we had to get right in with the uh, guest host uh, Bowen last time and didn't want to bore him with ReCore, is uh, yeah, I don't recommend it. Um XCOM 2, though, I do recommend. Uh, I've not finished it yet, uh, but it's a turn-based strategy game, though, so you really have to like that format. And uh, Outside of Civilization, XCOM is probably what I most think of nowadays when it comes to turn-based strategy. I'm really ga- glad that uh, Fear Axis Games has, has brought it back. 
I did play the, uh, as did you, uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown, which was the first of their reboot of this franchise. Mm-hmm. A notable reboot because uh, they kept the turn-based mechanic, which for those that don't know, and I and I like what they've done with it, uh, but Fallout 1 and 2 were turn-based strategy games, and then they became sh- first-person slash third-person shooters. Uh, and this, they actually stuck with the roots, and I think they've executed extremely well uh, from a tactical standpoint. I, I mean, it's more of a tactical game than uh, than Civilization, which is more of a strategy game. But, but the basically the idea is, as it's a sequel from Enemy Unknown, they've had to make a certain ending canon to Enemy Unknown. So the the ending is that uh, the enemy, the aliens won, and so in XCOM Two, you have to start up a very meager rebellion and build it up to a full army to fight against the aliens. So, so basic enough, they got a whole lot of lore in there and all sorts of stuff to read just like they did in the first one. But uh, in terms of where I am, uh, yeah, I have no, I have no context. I should probably look to see how many hours I have put in on this game. But the problem for me with these turn-based strategy games like this, where I'm commanding a small squad is I hate losing my veteran units. (laughs) So I, it's, Unlike Nier, this has an autosave system, an exceedingly generous autosave system, but I am also manually saving usually after every move of my units. Oh, you save scum. Oh, mm-hmm. you don't have an even Iron Man. To be fair, I have an Iron Man XCOM too. It's, you did the first it's one. It's pretty though. rough. I, I did the not. first one. Uh, yeah, XCOM 2, I have an Iron Man. It is, it, it is pretty rough, but even then, I don't tend to save scum. I tend to save... I try always tried to limit myself to like two saves a mission. Like I, I'd have a, mm. a save at the very beginning of the mission, and when I felt like I was about halfway through the mission, I would do a save, and that's about all I did. And even even that was hard with XCOM Two. It XCOM Two is a hard game. Yeah, uh, could you explain what Iron Man is to the listeners because they probably don't know. Oh, I, uh, the Iron Man setting is basically the game auto saves. And you can't choose when you save and it only auto saves the last save. So you can't go, Oh, I lost this guy. I'm going to go back to another save. When, when Bobby dies, the very first thing the game does after Bobby gets shot in the head is save the game because you're boned. Yep. I do not, I've not played Iron, Iron Man on XCOM or XCOM 2. Uh, no, I don't load like every time my characters get hurt. What I'll do is I'll, I'll execute a turn and I'll decide, okay. Do I still think I can complete this mission? And if I I feel confident enough, okay. But yeah, if I if I lose my expert ranger, I'm like, no, 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 no. Well, I'll let someone else die instead. But we're not losing all of we're not losing all of them, Tony. We're not losing all <laughs> of them. So sa- save scumming is that what that's called? Yeah, it's safe scumming. It's not. There are some people I have seen people who literally. They would save, they save every time they do anything and they will save scum if they miss a shot until the shot hits. Oh. They will save scum. Yeah. I tried that on a stage, but the problem was, is that to get like every unit to execute properly, you're be loading a lot. It's just, it, you'd be sitting there. It's already bad enough. This, I mean, the combat is, is very, my favorite part's actually managing the base and, and being strategic and, and choosing those sort of things than the combat. This I'm only playing on normal. I gotta say, holy cow! I don't remember XCOM Enemy Unknown being this rough. I just feel like I'm barely making it every single time. Uh, ever since the first few missions, I 
I, I, I guess I'm doing okay. Cause I'm, I usually don't lose more than half the team and I'm still just doing four man, I guess in terms of context. So because Tony's played it to give him a sense of where I am, I'm a little bit past getting my shadow chamber built. And it's only within the last couple of missions that I have met berserkers and the b- bad guys who can generate the shields around their parties. Oh yeah, I hate those guys. Yeah. No, XCOM Two is rougher than XCOM. Um, I'm pretty sure I said that last time we talked about XCOM. I 2, think so it, too. Yeah, I think so. It, it is flat rougher than XCOM in every way. And now I don't know. I don't know. You don't have the uh, the expansions. The the mm, Shin's last no. gift. Okay. No, I haven't gotten those. Yeah, the expansions are kind of fun because uh, it's Alien Hunters and Shin's last gift. Because the Alien Hunters bring in these Regent or royalty version of so the different aliens that are basically really super strong versions, but they also you also get some special weapons that have bonuses that are really strong. But what's terrible is the normally, you know, if you play your turns and then the aliens play their turns, well, these regents, these royals in this DLC, every time you finish a turn with one of your characters, or every time you make a move or do anything with one of your characters, it gets to respond. So for every Uh, move you do, it makes a move. That sounds awful. Oh, it is terrible. It is so horrible. And it's so hard. The options, the options to make this game even harder than how it is on normal are ridiculous. I, I, I finally, I was looking over the achievement list as I've been going along because I, you know, I'm getting some as I, as I play. Like I melee my very first berserker, I actually killed with a melee hit. And that was worth a little achievement. I was like, oh, how neat. And I looked at the list of achievements. I was like, holy cow, like playing on Iron Man and never losing a unit. I mean, there were there are some like that. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I played on Iron Man and won because it's like, you know what? Hmm. I've got six guys that can go on this mission. I'm going to send two veterans and a whole bunch of meat. And maybe some of the meat will survive while the veterans do most of the actual killing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, uh, I guess, uh, since, since we've both played it, uh, what's your favorite, um, character type once they get them past rookie stage? Like, what's your favorite class? Still sniper. Okay. Uh, I, like the changes they made to sniper. Uh, I used to always be a squad site sniper, but the changes they made to sniper in XCOM two to where they've got the uh, pistol sniper guy who can switch to who can has all sorts of pistol tricks for close range, uh, directly changed to the point where every squad that I had, especially at in game had a squad site sniper and a pistol sniper. Hmm. And then I built the rest of the team around having those two guys. The, my, my other, my other people would be, you know, just like one of each of the others. Right. Uh, just because I felt that they were the most useful, uh, the sniper's ability, a squad site sniper's ability to back up the other players and pull them out of the fire. When something went wrong, went a long way towards saving a lot of my people. And some of the moves the pistol guy gets later on are just insane because you can just whip your pistol out and shoot literally every alien in sight. And with the right pistol, I mean, it might not do a ton of damage, but it will typically be able to do enough to, especially if you've injured aliens, it's a good way to finish them off. So yeah, I'd go snipers were my primary go-to. I always carried two. 
Okay. Okay. I, I've been favoring Rangers, which are the melee characters. Uh, Rangers are very good. Uh, I did use them a lot, especially in the early game. In the late game, I slackened off on them some just because there's some direct anti-ranger stuff you might eventually yes. find. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, against, you might against, have things found like already. against things like berserkers, I'm like, uh, don't really like being close to them. So yeah. most of the time I'm comfortable going in with two rangers and then I'll, I'll take a, I'll either do double sniper. I'll take a sniper and then I'll take one of them hacker type guys. They're probably yeah. my least favorite though. Now, I always had at least one ranger because, and especially like with some of the really high level ranger abilities, give you an amazing ability to wipe out weak enemies uh, where you can run into. It's like, oh, hey, look, here's a bunch of weak enemies that are all bunched up close enough that my one ranger can literally, I can pop this one ability and just run and kill and run and kill and run and kill and run and kill and run. I can wipe out seven guys, but. They're definitely somebody I kept. I just felt like the snipers gave me better overall use. Mm, yeah, no, it makes sense. And I've been uh, a lot of times I will go in with two. I, I've even gone in with sneak, three snipers before. But um, in terms of now, in terms of enemies, and I guess maybe not really super unique enemies uh, in terms of most dislike. I for me, I'd say I probably get most frustrated with the the robot units. Just because their missiles always seem to ruin everything, especially if I'm using snipers. They just like to drop the roofs. And I'm usually not very well equipped on my squads to deal with armored enemies. So the robots always frustrate me. Yeah. Now, the best counter to the robots are the guy, the hacker guys, because a hacker guy properly set up will destroy even really high-end robots in, like, single shots. Uh, so they can be very useful if they've got the right skills. Um, one of the nice things is in one of the DLC, uh, Shin's last gift, you get your own robot as a character and a class that you can start have making, or like these robot classes that don't act like the tanks and the, or the hover tank type things. They act like a character, but they're robots and they give you good. They're pretty good. I, I like them too. So, but that again, that's from the, that that's from the Shin's gift DLC. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, I guess it's safe to say both Tony and I recommend XCOM 2 for people who do enjoy turn-based strategy games. So, And hard games. I mean, I'm sitting at about 73 hours in. I've got 73 hours into it. I haven't played it in a while, but I've got a, I've almost 100 hours or three-quarter, 73, almost 75 hours in, so... That's- yeah, I don't. Um, I take a lot of breaks from it. I, I have been playing it for a while now because it's it's been about a month since I've started it. I usually only do two or three combat missions per sit down, and then I like to take a break because it's stressful. Yeah, yes, it, it is, and I'd just be like, "Oh, great, I, I made it," or I've, I've lost someone, and I, it's just like, "No, I I can win the mission with them dead. They're worth the sacrifice." But I still feel bad because I had them, you know, part way up their skill tree, and now it's all undone. But that's XCOM. Well, see, and the thing, the nice thing about XCOM too is you can create your characters so that they are and save them and have them as a list that just gets automatically pulled in for when you get new recruits. They, 
people can come up. So like my new recruits were always named after like you and my wife and all of our, all of our friends and, and like, like YouTubers that I like and stuff like that. They're all outfitted. And I found a place online where I was able to download some pre-configured people that had their look and their names already. And I did that. So, so I had everybody is always in my list is always, uh, somebody I've put in, they're always a custom guy, even if I just recruit a new person. Yeah. Yeah. There really is a lot of flexibility. You can really personalize your experience. So you in case you didn't care enough when you lost the, your well-groomed, well-earned veterans, now you can feel like you lost your family. Yeah. So Battletech, Tony, let's talk about, let's talk about something happy. Battletech. Well, originally Battletech had been talking about dropping their player beta in uh, March and they ran into some issues in the engine that caused them to do a fair amount of reworking on some of it, which made them delay. And they now announced uh, a week or so ago, their new beta backer uh, launch date is June 1st. Um, I am planning on buying it or I'm not planning. I've already bought it. I did it a long time ago, but I'm planning on picking up the beta and I normally steer away from betas. Um, but as I've talked before, I love Battletech so much. I'm just going to do it. And I'm hoping if I can get everything working to at the bare minimum, uh, record some gameplay and put it out. Uh, I'm also hoping to stream it. That's going to just depend upon how well my internet is because playing the game and recording and streaming and especially if the kids and the wife are all streaming stuff too uh sometimes i get some um lag which causes the video to chunk real bad on streaming so we're just going to have to see how things are going when i do it but the bare minimum i'm going to record some gameplay uh to put out there and talk about uh they also uh made an announcement that they have uh, formed a partnership with Paradox Interactive. Uh, Paradox Interactive is a a very large uh, strategy game uh, publisher. Uh, They have put out uh, so many games, like half the games in my Steam library are Paradox Interactive games. It feels like sometimes. Um, But uh, they... When they made the announcement, they explained that the deal boils down to uh, Paradox is going to provide the marketing support, the localization services, and they also are providing extra funding, uh, not for the creation of the game itself, but to let them um, extend the testing and bring in more professional testers so it gets a a really good set uh, beta run and testing run down before it goes into full release. And, but Hairbrained maintains complete creative control. So it is still a Hairbrained's game and it's still everything they're doing. Um, so the main thing is that they're going to handle the marketing and sales and with the size of Paradox and how many games Paradox has put out and how well received so many of Paradox's games have been that this should go a long way to making this game have a much larger uh launch than it would have just as Kickstarter when without them having to move off extra funding to handle marketing and without them having to move off extra people uh, to handle marketing and sales. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And it sounds, but throughout this whole process, I've 
uh, because you've you've given us several updates, and I've always been under the impression that Hairbrain has been doing this probably what we would say the right way. Um, a lot of transparency in their process, always really clear when delays have come up, and they seem to be executing a business plan that is designed to make sure the product has as much success as possible. So. I, it sounds very positive and hopefully you will be able to, to, even if you can't live stream it, hopefully you'll be able to uh, put up some footage, maybe on the YouTube page or something. So people can see a little bit of the game. That's what I'm hoping for. Because I, again, I mean, for me and the nice thing, I think the reason I'm so interested in it is because for the harebrained schemes guys, this is a massive labor of love because they love battle tech. Like I love battle tech and they've released some videos of their, um, um, when they announced the multi, they released a multiplayer gameplay video, which I will include a link for. And they've released su- several other, uh, clips of just them talking about stuff coming up. So it is going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. I'm hoping it looks fun. Okay. Well, that's all the game stuff I had to talk about. Do you have anything else you want to go through? One minor thing. Uh, I know I've talked in the past about uh, Star Realms in both the tabletop and the uh, digital version of Star Realms. And they have just made their newest major release of Colony Wars. It's their newest major DLC release. And at the same time that they did it, they did a major um, update to just the overall look and uh, feel of the game. I'm still getting a uh, feel for it. It's seems fine to me. I haven't had any big issues with it. I know some people aren't real happy with it. Some people have been having some lag issues, but it's nothing that I've seen. Uh, as of yet, it does seem to be most of the problems are happening on the Steam version, while the phone and tablet versions are fine. So I'm hoping they get those uh, ironed out, whichever, whatever's causing those little issues. But so far, it's been pretty good. And Colony Wars is a major expansion that adds a lot of new cards and gives you a lot of new options and a lot of new strategies. Cool. Okay. Well, We've reached the end of episode 35. Uh, for all of you who have stuck with us and listened, I want to say thank you very much. And if you want to interact with us, there are many ways you can do so. If you're a traditionalist and want to email, you can email us. Uh, we are at eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. If you are more of a social media type, uh, facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast is probably our most active area in terms of sharing news stories and such from pinball and video games and tabletop. Uh, but there are a couple other social options for you if you want to reach out. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. In both cases, we're at eclectic underscore gamers. And we are going to hopefully soon be available at Twitch at eclectic underscore gamers. I've got the account up. I just haven't really done much with it yet because I haven't had anything really to stream yet. Yeah, but but you will uh, once, once Battletech is ready. And hopefully the, the bandwidth, God's willing, it shall go well. But also as a reminder, folks, if you want to uh, leave us a rating and review uh, with iTunes, it helps with the search algorithms and a lot of the listens do come through that platform. So if you've got it on your system and you don't mind taking a couple seconds and doing that, we would really appreciate it. But uh, until the next episode, I'm going to say good. My name is Dennis and so long. 
Take it easy, everybody.